the teaching ministry of Judah Olorimaye, a man called of God to compel consecration, provoke repentance, and inspire worship by the preaching and teaching of God's word and the miraculous demonstration of God's power. God's word is about to hit you as life and strength. Get ready for an encounter with grace. first um, three verses. If, if I had my way, I would read the entire chapter. Or rather, the entire book. <laughs> or maybe we will stop at, because I think my teaching stops really at chapter 6. I don't really go beyond chapter 6 in my exposition of the subject matter. But first three verses of the book will suffice for now. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Akaliah, and it's come to pass in the month of Jesus. Chisliu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Sushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity, Sorry. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province and great affliction and reproach, the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Let's do verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So I will teach on building lessons from Nehemiah, or you can also call it construction lessons. Building lessons from Nehemiah, or construction lessons from Nehemiah. Let's quickly pray. Our dear Father, we receive understanding as we look into your word. We ask that your spirit will cause us to comprehend the things that your word will communicate and we will never be the same again in Jesus name building lessons from Nehemiah or construction lessons from Nehemiah every one of us will be involved at one point in life with a building project every one of us as long as you are chasing after some measure of success some measure of fulfillment or satisfaction we will all at one point or the other be involved with a building project. When I say a building project, I'm not talking about you physically building a house. That's not necessarily the building project you'll be involved in. But of course, some of us will actually be involved in physically building a house. But you cannot escape it as somebody who is chasing after satisfaction, fulfillment, purpose, and even pleasing God. There will be seasons in your life that will be dedicated to constructions buildings. For instance, if you are going to be married, you have to understand that um, you will need to build a home. You will need to build your marriage. Marriage is not just a gift from God. It's something that you construct. That's why the Bible tells us, for instance, that a wise woman builds a house. 
If you do not understand that marriage is something that you build, you build it alongside God, you'll be thinking it's a ready-made thing that God just gives, or God just gives you a good wife, or God just gives you a good husband. But no. Christian marriage is about you building a wonderful home. you constructing a wonderful marriage. If you'll be involved in any form of ministry, ministries are also not just gifts. They are built. They are constructed. Rama Chapel has been in existence for I think about 36 to 37 years. I mean, it's an affirmation of the construction of a ministry. The building of a ministry. It is not just a gift that God gave Reverend George. It's something that Reverend George alongside God, or God alongside Reverend George, or God in partnership with Reverend George, built. He built from the scratch. At the inaugural service of this ministry, I don't know if they were up to 20 people. I don't know if when God showed the vision of this ministry to Reverend George, he was thinking about a ministry that will have tentacles spread all over the world. But eventually, it was a project that was built from the scratch, out of nothing as it were. It was built block upon block, um, layer upon layer, till it is what it is right now. So, marriages are built, churches and ministries are built, businesses and careers are built. Okay, I'm married into ministry. I'm going to be a businessman. I'm going to be a career person. Listen to me. Careers are also built. Today, perhaps one of the most successful businessmen in the world that everybody is talking about is the man Elon Musk. Listen to me. He, did not, he was not born like that. He built his empire. He built his business. He built his career. So, the point I'm making is this. If you are living life, except you don't want to excel in anything, you just want to wait till you die. If you are chasing your dreams, if you are pursuing purpose, if you are trying to be fulfilled, if you are trying to obey God, you cannot avoid the conversation of construction and building. As long as we live on the earth and we hope to thrive and excel, we must acquire the wisdom of building. The scripture I quoted earlier is in Proverbs 24.3, I think. By wisdom a house is built. And my understanding, it is established. Everything that you see that exists today, cities, you see civilizations, you see technological advancements, you see apps, media apps, medical apps, business apps, they were built. And so we must talk about this conversation of building and construction. If you look at the Bible also, you would notice there are several examples of buildings. There are several construction instances. For instance, Noah built an ark. For instance, Moses built a tabernacle. For instance, Solomon built a temple. And of course, Jesus himself said, I will build my church. So, when we talk about the Bible, you notice there are, I mean, replete examples of buildings, construction. It's something that you cannot dodge. You cannot avoid it. You will have to build. You will have to learn how to build. You will have to learn how to construct. But... The emphasis for today is the construction or the building ministry of the man Nehemiah. We mentioned that Noah built an ark. We spoke about Jesus building his church. We spoke about Moses building a tabernacle and Solomon building the temple. But what we want to talk about tonight is construction from Nehemiah. What did Nehemiah build? He built a wall. Or you can say he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Now let 
talk about why wars are important, just to give you a background, because you may be thinking, why are we even considering this lesson, particularly because it's not really something that perhaps our generation may appreciate. If we say the building of the temple, you may find it very wonderful. The building of the tabernacle, the building of the church, the building of an ark. But you might think it's not really important to talk about the building of a wall. But in those days, in Bible times, city walls were very, very important. How you know that a city is fortified, a city is strong, a city is active, is by examining the wall. There is, for instance, in contemporary times, the walls of China. How many of you have heard that? The Great Wall of China. It's a very t- People live inside the wall. It's a very thick wall. Jericho, for instance, had a wonderful wall, very strong wall. So one of the ways you can examine the economic power of a nation or of a city is to check how well the wall is. If the wall is in ruins, it means the city is in ruins. If the wall is built, it means the city is built. If the wall is fortified, it means the city is fortified. In fact, if somebody is living in a city where the walls are not well built, that person most likely will be struggling with high blood pressure. Why? Because when you are living in a city whose walls are in ruins, there is no security. You will have to always look out for yourself. You cannot sleep in peace. Every of your properties, every of your gold and diamond is not safe because anybody can break into the city and pick it up. That means people living in the walls or living behind the walls of a city that has been besieged are not healthy people. They are not, they are not creative in their thinking. They use all their energy trying to secure their goods because the walls are destroyed. And so one of the things that is strengthened in a nation, strengthened in a town, strengthened in a city in Bible times are walls. Now, in modern times, we don't really have walls. All we have are borders. So between Nigeria and, uh, let's use, for instance, Chad, that shares a northern border with Nigeria, there are no walls. In fact, in some countries, what differentiates, um, what separates a country from another country could just be something like a river or something like a street. But... In those days, walls are found demarcation, and walls were fortified. They were people called watchmen. They stayed on the walls. They live on the walls. When they saw danger coming, they would blow a trumpet and say, "Hey, alert, everybody!" You know. So, I mean, walls were very important in Bible days. And when we are talking about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, you need to understand how it was important in those days, so that you can appreciate the ministry and the life of Nehemiah. Okay. Now, the man Nehemiah, who was he? Let me ask you this question. Who do you think he was? We discovered Daniel was a politician who was eventually called the prophet. Esther was queen. Joseph was prime minister. Who was Nehemiah? What? Cup bearer. So, who is a cup bearer? Can anybody give me a modern translation for cup bearer? Chef? Nah. <laughs> Who is, for instance, the cup bearer of the president of Nigeria? His bodyguard, his personal bodyguard. Yeah. Not the one that you know. You don't know him. You can't know him. <laughs> So people who visit the president personally that will know him. 
It's not the person that comes and wears army clothes and says, we are the gypsy. The Egyptians are not the real personal bodyguard of the president. The role of a cup bearer, don't allow the word cup deceive you. In those days, in Bible time, was a very exalted, honorable, delicate role. The cup bearer, you know we read about him in the Joseph story. Is that not so? The cup bearer was somebody who was like the personal bodyguard of the king. Not necessarily bodyguarding through muzzles and weapons of war, but anything that would get to the king must get through the cup bearer. If the king wants to take any drink, the cup bearer must taste it first to ensure that the drink is safe. If the cup bearer does not die, then the king can drink it. If the cup bearer becomes sick because he tasted something that was supposed to be taken by the king, well, certainly they will track and trace who prepared that meal, who prepared that drink, and they might cut off the person's head. In those days, assassination attempts are just, go, just cut off the head. They don't know cut, no trial, nothing. So the cup bearer is like a personal bodyguard. Anyone who wants to even talk to the king has to go through that personal bodyguard, that cup bearer. That was the position of Nehemiah. Of course, Nehemiah also was a Jew, just like every other people have considered Daniel, um, Joseph, and Esther, taken captive into another country. But by virtue of some of the things we should consider, he, has, he attained to the position of the king's cup bearer. Interesting that the king would trust somebody who is not from his own country with the delicate work of a cup bearer. It was one of the most honorable positions in the land. So, let me read a few things here so that you can understand. A cup bearer was a high official in the royal household whose basic duty of choosing and tasting the wine to demonstrate that it is not poisoned and presenting it to the king gave him frequent access to the king's presence and made him potentially a man of influence. The king, therefore, had to have a tremendous amount of trust in his cupbearer. If you want to kill a king, you will have to go to the cupbearer. Once you can bribe the cupbearer, you can take away the king. In those days, once the cupbearer is compromised, then the king can be attacked. So, the, the king had to have tremendous amounts of trust in his cupbearer, who had to be a man of faithful and impressive character. If the cupbearer could be turned against the king, assassination would be easy. Also, the cupbearer was a servant to the king. He was responsible for choosing most of the foods and wines that the king and the court would enjoy. So whatever is taken in the palace is the cupbearer of the side. Today, we are drinking, um, give me the name of any wine there. Okay, give me drink. You don't drink wine. Five alive. Next week, we are drinking Zobo. It is the cup, it's not the king that will decide that. It's the cupbearer that will decide that. It would ensure that whatever it is that is I mean, being maintained in the kitchen of the palace went through him. And please note that the kitchen of the palace was massive business. It was massive work. It was perhaps the most important, aside from administration. Because food in those days, I mean, you saw from the story of Daniel, there was even a portion of the king's meat, sometimes dedicated to idols. So it was a very important Rule. Let me also read on here. He says he was a man um, to be trusted and of great character. It was natural the cupbearer would often be asked his opinion on different matters 
coming before the king. So if you want to give the king a gift, for instance, you ask the cupbearer. What do you think the king would like? What do you think I should buy for the king? If you want to see the king concerning any subject, you have to first of all go through the cupbearer. This was the position of Nehemiah. Do we understand? Okay. But our emphasis is not on the cup-bearing ministry of Nehemiah. We are trying to consider the lessons of construction, building the walls of Jerusalem from this man, Nehemiah. But we have the background story that he was the king's cup-bearer in another country. He was not in his country. So in Nehemiah chapter 1, we read that Nehemiah asked certain questions about the homeland. Actually, in Bible times, when people are taken captive like that, the land that they took them from lies desolate. If nobody inhabits a land, a country can go extinct. What that means, for instance, is that if there's a war, and then all our governors and presidents and senators are arrested and taken away from Nigeria, and then the other normal citizens are converted to slaves and probably taken away, taken away to China to go and do labor work in China. The country Nigeria can go extinct. It can stop existing. And that's the way nations were destroyed. By consistent slavery, you can destroy a nation. However, many times, because how many people do you want to carry? I mean, in a country that has about 2 million people, the Jews were about probably 2 million people. You cannot carry all of them to Babylon. So they will leave a couple of people, just a small percentage, to be in the land, even though the land has been destroyed, the land has been plagued with, I mean, famine and war and all of that. Now, out of that small percentage, they will be taxing them. They will give them hard labor so that they don't think of doing anything massive for that country. They are just maintaining the geographical remnants of that land. They are not going to build anything, no project. Nobody could just come and say, this is our country, we want to rebuild the world. There was nothing like that. It was from that point that Nehemiah asked about the welfare of his town, the welfare of his people. And in verse 3, it was told him that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. The Bible says in verse 4, it came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. First lesson here. In building anything, in building anything, make the project a divine project. Everybody say divine project. What that means is that don't build anything, don't construct anything as though it is your own. You want to build a family, don't do it as though my family. No. You want to build a ministry, don't say my ministry. No. You want to build a career and a business. Don't say, my business. Make it a divine project. In Psalm 127 verse 1, the psalmist says, Except the Lord builds a house, the laborers labor but in vain. Except the Lord watches over his city, the watchmen watch but in vain. That is trying to enforce the principle of divine dependence concerning what you want to build. We all have dreams. We all have things we want to achieve in life. 
all have pursuits, goals, and ambitions. But listen to me. One of the best ways you can build your life, build your ministry, build your career, build your business, build your marriage, is to consider the project a divine project. Not a personal project. Once you make it a personal project, sometimes you remove the sense of dependence on God. Make it a divine project project. That this is something that only God can help me build. It's not something I can build because I'm smart. It's not something I can build because I'm wealthy. It's not something I can build because I'm strong. Except the Lord builds a house. The laborers labor but in vain. It was Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.6 Concerning the building of the church in Corinthians Paul plants, Apollo waters, but God gives the increase. You see, even when you are doing the work of God, there's a temptation to do it as though it's my work, it's my church, it's my ministry, I'm the founder, I'm the general overseer. No! If you want to really build effectively, you want to build something strong, something lasting, something that will be wonderful and glorious, then you must build as though it is a divine project. Jesus says, I will build my church. But essentially, you notice he was building the church as a representative of God's kingdom. It was not just Jesus' personal project. It was not Jesus' personal brand. It was an extension of the kingdom of God. Your marriage should be built as an extension of the kingdom of God. Your business should be built as an extension of the kingdom of God. Don't build it as just a personal business idea. Something that will give you personal profit. No! Let it be something that will bring profit to God's kingdom. So, in building the wall, Nehemiah did not see it as a personal project. He saw it as a divine project. This is now, listen to me, Nehemiah at the point when he began to rebuild the wall was a very rich man. You cannot be the cup bearer of the king and be poor. Very comfortable, very wealthy, lived in the palace, very rich man. So it was not a personal project. I'm sure he had lands and houses on his own. Rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem was not a personal project. For, for Nehemiah, he saw it as a divine project. Now, let me say this before I begin to really explain this concept. Don't attempt to build anything that God will not be involved in. Anything that you know God will not be involved in. The beginning, the middle, at the end. Don't attempt to build it. If you want to build a marriage that God will be involved in, there are some people you cannot marry. If you want to build a business that God will be involved in, there are some kind of businesses you cannot do. There are some business principles you cannot employ. If you want to build an, I mean, an, a, a career that God will be involved in, there are some kind of jobs you cannot take. If you know that you want God to be involved in your construction, the construction of your life, the construction of your business, the construction of your career, of your ministry, then you have to do it in a way that God will be involved. You can build a ministry, a church, and God will not be involved. Oh yeah. There are people who build churches, who build ministries for the aim of making money. Money is the essence for the building. God will not be involved in that kind of a church. God will not be involved in that kind of a project. God will not be involved in that kind of a construction. You can build in a way that when you are done building, the glory of God will fall. It happened when Moses was done with building the tabernacle. The glory of God fell. When Solomon was done building the temple, the glory of God fell. When Jesus was done building the church, the glory of God fell. In Acts chapter 2. Anytime you see a building that attracts and reflects the glory of God, it is because it's a divine project. Many times we build our own project and ask God to come and bless it. No. That's not how it works. 
You build your life. You build your marriage and say, God, come and bless it. You marry an unbeliever and say, God, come and bless it. You build a family without the principles of God's word and you say, God, come and bless my children. It does not work like that. If you are going to build anything that is worth building at all, make it a divine project. You want to build a career? A divine project. I mean, Nehemiah had a career, but he made it a divine project. Joseph had a career, made it. Daniel, Esther, all these people had careers, they made it a divine project. Stop. We must stop this idea of making God the icing on the cake. We do everything without Him, and then when we want to now dedicate it, when I say, God, you are Alpha and Omega. No. Some people run their lives the way they want it, and when they want to retire, they will not retire. At 65, I say, now I want to do Bible school. Because I'm retiring now. That's not the way to live your life. Nobody says you should be a full minister of the gospel, a full-time minister from young age. But then, your entire life must be lived as a divine project. When Noah was constructing that ark, you think he was a carpenter? He was just obeying God. When Moses was building the tabernacle, you think he was a constructor? He was just obeying God. The point I'm making is this. Let your life be a divine project. This is how to build. Don't build a family that will mass produce children who don't fear God. Don't build a business where mammon is God. Don't build a ministry where Jesus is not in charge. Don't build a career that will work against God's kingdom. Don't build a career that will take people to hell. Some people's businesses actually take people to hell. You open a hotel. Listen to me. If you are opening a hotel, you can open an hotel in such a way that it should not be a ground for fornication and adultery. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You open a hotel, you buy seven starts of Sisha. Who do you want to attract there? And he's saying, you can't dedicate a pastor, bring your anointing oil on this hotel and pray for it. What, what are you doing? You can open a school. You open a secondary school and it is renowned for cheating, exam and practice. Why do you want your business to send people to hell for goodness sake? Why? You open tutorial center. It's not tutorial center. It is actually my practice center. Come on. You now say I'm paying my tithes. Which tithe? Who do you think God is? Whatever you are doing must be a divine project. You can open an hospital and it is run with every, every sense of morality. Not the one where they open down that you cannot even... I mean, in the Western world, it's so terrible. You cannot even advise somebody who wants to abort not to. You cannot. They can withdraw your license for that. The systems are built against God. It's a tower of Babel. And people are building things that are antagonistic to the kingdom of God. Don't be somebody who builds something that will be a supporter of hell. Whatever you are building, let it advance God's kingdom. Nehemiah built a wall. It was not just for decoration. It was because that was a type of the house of God. An extension of the kingdom of God. Don't get involved in any building project that you know that God will not support. When they went to build the tower, it looked like a good idea. But when God looked down, he said, ah, confuse the language. Scatter them. Send them packing. Now, one of the ways I know that Nehemiah's project was a divine project was his constant attitude of prayer 
throughout the execution of the project. Constant attitude of prayer. Listen to me. Don't build a project you cannot pray about. Because as you are this, you know that even this one God can answer. If you build a hotel and the customers in the hotel are sex workers and you are praying, God give me more sex workers, you too know that God will not. You too, you know that God will not answer the prayer. Any project you cannot pray about, commit to God's hands, you know it's not a divine project. Don't waste your time on it. Don't waste your time on it. Do something else. But you notice all through scriptures a constant attitude of prayer. Let's see a couple of verses to protest what I'm saying here. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4. You notice a constant attitude of prayer. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for, my, for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah heard about the walls of Jerusalem and he began to mourn. He began to fast and pray. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 4. You saw what happened in Nehemiah chapter 1. Then look at what it says in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 4. Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Just before Nehemiah was about to begin the project and he was offered a blank check from the king, Nehemiah also prayed. You see that? Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 1. You notice a constant disposition of prayer. And Eliashab, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the ship gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of hundred and consecrated it. Then as far as the tower of Hananel. Now this is consecration, but you notice that once the project started, the first thing that Nehemiah did was to ensure that the high priest offered certain spiritual sacrifices, performed certain religious rites, to consecrate would have involved prayers. Because to consecrate means to dedicate. They didn't pray at the end of the project, or they didn't pray only at the end of the project. From the beginning of the project, they dedicated to God. God is your work. To consecrate here means that they handed it over to God. God, this is your wall. It's the walls of Jerusalem. You see prayer everywhere. Everywhere you see, everywhere you turn, you see prayer. Nehemiah knew that if it was a divine project, it would only be executed by the power of prayer. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 3. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 3. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Go ahead to verse 4. Yeah, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Once they heard the report of the enemy, they went to pray. They went to pray. Prayer was always the reaction to everything. The king said, what do you want me to give you? They will pray first. When the work starts, they will pray first. When the enemy threatens, they will pray. That was how the work was executed. Let me say a few things here about prayers and divine projects. Number one, divine projects are conceived in prayers. You conceive it. Just like a woman conceives a baby, projects are conceived in prayers. Conceived. And one of the ways you can notice a conception of a divine project is by a strong burden and impression received after prayers. There's something I'd like to show you in Nehemiah 7 
and verse 5. Just a principle to probably give you a clue how Nehemiah executed or how Nehemiah even conceived this project of rebuilding the wall. Verse 5 of Nehemiah 7. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. So this was subsequently in the ministry of Nehemiah. We notice he also established a documentation of those who were still in the land. But the phrase here is, then my God put into my heart. Everybody say, my God put into my heart. So when we spend time praying, there are certain things God put into our heart. Strong impressions. The conception of a divine project. I, I know that when I was a teenage boy, that's when I began to have the sense of a call into the work of ministry. I, I wanted to be a pilot at first, then a footballer, then a football commentator. Ministry was, I mean, I saw how broke and poor my father was, who was a pastor. I was nothing attractive about the work of the ministry. But as I began to spend time in prayer, I noticed I began to have a burden, an impression, a strong impression. It will just not leave my soul that I'll probably end up in ministry. And it was just there, and I kept it to myself like Mary kept Jesus in her womb. Until it began to evolve and evolve into an overwhelming burden I could no longer resist. Then I began to yield myself to the call of God. The point I'm making is this. When you spend time in prayer, certain things are conceived. You are pregnant with divine ideas. Suddenly you think about something. Suddenly something that never crossed your mind now comes to your mind. And you feel like, oh, I can do this thing. Oh, this is a good thing to do. The rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem was not just a physical woman thinking. It was not just physical woman ideas. It was not the woman project. It was something that God put into the heart of Nehemiah. If you see a minister or, for instance, a missionary who is risking his life to preach the gospel, you're wondering, this guy, you know, they fear, you not know, take care of yourself. It's because of what God has put into his heart in prayers. If you too pray, there are certain projects that you will tell your friend, they'll say, Are you crazy? What do you want to do? Are you okay? Don't do that. Don't do that. I mean, how do you tell a king that you want to go and build the walls of your own country? Ah. Where did you get that kind of audacity from? Prayer. Divine projects are... Some people say, I don't know my purpose. I don't know what I can do for God. Go and pray. Go and pray now. It is in prayer you can conceive divine projects. But the truth is that some of us are not even interested in divine projects. We just want to build our own thing. Then call God to come and dedicate it. Tell you this, you cannot be really great in the books of God building your thing. You cannot be, you cannot be great, man. The real great men are people who build God's project. Moses built a tabernacle, Solomon built a temple, Noah built a ark, Jesus built his church. What do you want to build? What do you want to build? Ask yourself that question. Do you have any interest in building anything from God for God? What you build for God will outlive you. It will outlast you on the earth. You will be remembered not for what you built for yourself. You will be remembered for what you built for God. Oh yeah? Jesus is no more on the earth. But what he built for God is ever standing. It's eternal. It's immortal. It will never die. It will never perish. We know Moses because he was renowned for what he built for God. All this self-construction project is not the ideal way to live. Thinking about only yourself. You, only, you just want to build your stomach. You want to build, you want to build a three-bedroom flat into your stomach. 
And what I mean is that you want to just enjoy yourself, pleasure, have fun, be happy for yourself. That's not life. That's a rate. Nehemiah was comfortable. Cobbler, rich, stupendously rich. I mean, you see, in those days, the cobbler had to be rich to a point where if you want to bribe him, you go, you go bring money with plenty. You could not just bribe him with, with coins. The king pampered him. I know that Nehemiah was always pampered because on the day he did not smile, the king noticed. Nehemiah, you are not smiling. That means the man was always happy. Copier of the king, important man. But he knew that there was more to life than just holding cup for king. There's more to life than just being the CEO of a business. Make it a divine project. But these projects are conceived in prayers. Divine projects are also clarified in prayers. Some of you have received divine projects in your soul, but it's not clear. You know that you're supposed to do something for God in a particular city. Maybe not a ministry. Maybe even with a business plan. But it's not clear. Some of you have a sense of, ah, I want to build an orphanage home one day. I want to have a charity organization one day. But it's not clear. Go back and pray. Divine projects are conceived in prayers. They are also clarified in prayers. The confusion about the divine projects will be cleared in prayers. Go back and pray. The problem is that many times we conceive divine projects in prayers and we leave God alone. We stop praying. That's why when you see the execution of the project, you are wondering, is this from God? Because it's so mediocre, it's a mess, it's not excellent, because you did not spend enough time praying. Pray the project into clarity. You can receive the name of your ministry, the ministry, but that's not all about... Ministry is not about brand and logo. Say you know. I have a call, I have a call. What, what do you think you have a call? I, 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 I heard a voice. What is the voice? Consecration, consecration. Okay? Is that why you start praying? Go back and pray and read your Bible. For goodness sake, the fact that you heard a voice does not even mean straight into ministry. It does not mean to all the time. Sometimes God will say, go and do something else. For 40 years, I mean, Moses was in the wilderness. I don't know why he had to wait that long, but it was long until he was 80 that God now said, oh yeah, come and deliver my people from the bondage of Egypt. Clarity comes in prayers. Don't just receive a divine project and rush to execute it. No. Get clarity. Who am I going to work with? How long is the project going to last for? How exactly is the project going to be executed? Where am I supposed to set up the project? Those are questions you need to ask God in prayers. Many people build things that you think this thing is from God. In fact, you know it's from God, but they don't last. Why? The person did not receive a sustainable plan for the project. He just received the idea, lasso, and he began to run. Began to run. Began to run. He didn't wait on God for the full details. So divine projects are clarified in prayers. Divine projects are also initiated and nurtured in prayers. Initiated means, means when you are starting a project, start it in prayers. That's the best way to start a project. These days, people start churches by looking for sound systems, instruments, backdrop, lights, but they don't pray. <laughs> they think that the capital for divine projects are cameras and gadgets, except prayer. They don't pray. Every divine project 
must be initiated in prayer. People who do not pray, have no prayer life, want to start a marriage, want to start a home. What kind of, what kind of film trick is that? If marriage is a divine project, and you think prayer is not going to begin it? You want to build a career that is a divine project, but you don't want to pray, you're only gathering knowledge, and gathering connections, you have your PhD, you have your PhD, but you cannot pray for one hour. It's not going to be a divine project like that. Eventually, it may become something else. It may become a tower of Babel, but it will not be a divine project. Divine projects are initiated and nurtured, cultivated in prayers. Every project would often be threatened. We will see that from the life and ministry of Nehemiah. What will sustain your divine project is not just because it was from God, but did you pray? There are many projects from God that have been aborted. That God gave you a vision does not mean the vision will see the, the end of the century. There are many churches, 100 years ago, they were perhaps, I mean, some two or 300 years ago, the Methodist church was the most vibrant, fervent denomination in the entire world. Pastored and led by John Wesley. Today, that church is one of the sponsors of gay bishops, homosexual pastors. <laughs> it seems to me it's not because the call was not from God it's not even because John Wesley did not pray I know John Wesley based on what I've read from him he was a man who gave him to pray but maybe the people he handed over to did not pray he didn't pray every vision every divine project must be nurtured sustained by prayer let's go ahead here in this same direction divine projects are also preserved in terms of the retainment of its original and authentic quality in prayers. I've seen how visions change. I've seen how projects evolve. I've seen how buildings are reconstructed. And I can trace it to the fact that many people don't give themselves to prayer. They don't pray. Somebody started well in ministry. Started well concerning the business idea. Started work concerning the charity organization. Started work concerning his career. But as ego begin to enter, as he move from thousandaire to millionaire, he removed prayer from the equation. Then suddenly, what began as a church ended as a shrine. What started as a pastor ended as a babalawu. Yeah. What started as a servant of God in politics now became a servant of Satan in politics. Prayer. If you remove from the equation, the quality drops. The authenticity of the ministry, of the call, of the career, of the family drops. I've seen people start together as boyfriend and girlfriend. Seriously praying. They entered as married couples. Seriously praying. But once the children began to come, they removed prayer. Then a home that was supposed to be built as an extension of God's kingdom now became a den of thieves. A laboratory for Satan to do every evil work. What happened? They remove prayer. Are we getting it? If you are building a project and you want to feel this is the point of rest, marry by settle down. Hey, hey! Whatever you do in all your settling down, don't stop praying, oh! Don't stop praying, oh! Don't stop praying, oh! Even if the project is a ministry, church, you have to still. I mean, 
It was Apostle Paul who told the Galatian church, you began in the spirit. Do you think you'll be perfected in the flesh? You started this courtship with praying, spiritual fervency, spiritual activities. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that's why many divine projects eventually do not last. It's not because it's not a divine project. But sometimes there's no continuity. There's no retention of the original and authentic quality because prayer is removed. Divine projects are also completed in prayers. Nehemiah prayed in the beginning. Nehemiah prayed at the end. Completed in prayers. Completed in prayers. Many times, we only pray towards the end of a project. But by that time, it's too late. The project has already taken a different form. It has already become deformed. Deformed. Many of the prayers we pray towards... You see many marriages... After the 20th anniversary, 30th anniversary, they begin to now pray together. After all your children have left you, you, have, you are now a grandpa, a grandma. That's why you now remember prayer. What is done is done. What is done? By that time, it's already too late. What is done is done. So, that's, that's about prayer and divine projects, particularly from the ministry of Nehemiah. I'd like you to see the end of the construction Testimony in Nehemiah 6 and verse 16. Look at what even the enemies said about this project. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, the head of the completion of the rebuilding of the wall. And all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Anything you are building must be said like this. Let it when when as the thing is going, other people, other people say, wow, this must be the work of God. The way it is resilient, the way it is relentless, the way it is rugged and continuous, this must be. When the work finishes, when your marriage finishes, as it were, when every project you are doing finishes, let people say, wow, this is indeed the work of God. But it cannot happen if you are not given to prayer. It is by prayer that Nehemiah eventually was able to finish the work. Okay, let's go on to another lesson here. We are talking about construction lessons or building lessons from Nehemiah. Capital and resources for building projects. If you are building a marriage, you need a capital. You need resources. If you are building a career, you need capital. You need resources. If you are building a ministry, you need capital. You need resources. But what exactly is the capital fundamentally that God gives for divine project. The first capital for any divine project is not money. It is what is called burdens. A burden for the project. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we read that as soon as Nehemiah heard that the walls of Jerusalem are in ruins, he began to mourn. He began to be sad. He began to fast. He was in sorrow and anguish. In Nehemiah chapter 2, let's read this together. And verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1. Let's look at it together. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Axtercius, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Nehemiah as the cupbearer had no right to be sad. One of the reasons why as a cupbearer you have no right to be sad is if you are sad, they may suspect you and cut off your head. 
Look at him, look at the way he's doing his face. And he's standing before the king like this. Mm. This man is corrupted. This man does not like the king again. Cut his head off. Yeah. You cannot afford that risk as a cobbler to be sat in the presence of the king. The role, the job does not permit it. But Nehemiah was so burdened with the walls of Jerusalem that he probably forgot that ah, I'm standing before a king who I'm not supposed to be sad in front of. And he was sad. And the king said, I have never before. Sorry, okay. He was saying now, now I had never been sad in his presence before. Go ahead to verse 2. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? So the only way you should be sad is if you are sick. This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Do you know why he was afraid? He knew the implication of sorrow of heart working for the king. If you are sorrowful in your heart, it's probably because you are now an enemy of the king. And they will not interview you. They won't ask questions. They just cut off your head. That's what they do. So, when he, you, know, you, can, you see, in those days, if you are sad, it must not show on your face. If you have sorrow of heart, it must not show a sorrow of face. Once sorrow of heart begins to show a sorrow of face, your job is on the line. Your life is on the line. So he says, I was dreadfully afraid. Nehemiah was a man of God. Nehemiah was somebody who feared God. If he was afraid, there must have been a big deal. Verse 3. Verse 3, please. And said to the king, May the king live long forever, or live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's storms, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Verse 4. And the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God. The question here is, what are you sad over? Aside from the fact that Liverpool beat Manchester United, are you ever sad? Aside from the fact that in your credit account there's no much money there, are you ever sad? Do you ever look at the church of God, see the empty chairs and be sad? Do you ever look at the carnality of God's people, the people who are under God's influence, and be sad and say, what will all we receive? Why is our life still like this? Does anything about God's kingdom make you sad? That's the question here. The first capital for a divine project is a body. Something that takes away temporal happiness. Even though you are comfortable. Even though this man was rich. The cup bearer. Yet his sorrow was evident. Is there anything that really ask yourself the question. Is there anything that really makes you sad? Apart from personal ambitions and personal setbacks and personal losses, do you ever weep over God's people? Do you ever behold Jerusalem, behold the church of the living God and say, Ah! What is happening in the body of Christ? Does it concern you? Some of us, we mourn over the things of the ungodly, wicked world. We never mourn over the church. A celebrity got divorced. Hey, you are sad. You are depressed. You don't care if the celebrity is an atheist, if the celebrity curses Jesus, hates the church, calls pastors criminals. You don't care. But you are sad. The point is this, we cannot talk about divine, divine projects without the capital of burdens. Jesus was burdened for the church. The Bible says concerning him, the zeal of the house of God has eaten me up. It is burdens that keep you going in divine projects. 
when they are confronted with challenges, it's not money. The capital for divine projects fundamentally is not money. It's not the resource of gold and silver. It's burdens. Do you have a burden for God? Do you have a burden for godly marriages? Do you have a burden to see empires or business empires that are run by the principles of Yahweh? Do you have a burden to see hotels where prostitutes and harlots will not find a safe heaven? Do you have a burden to see purity and righteousness on the streets? What, what, what do you have a burden for? Your burden can be a clue to the divine project that God has committed to your hands. I tell people, I don't really say I'm called, but if you insist that I'm called, I will say, I am called because I know I have a burden to teach and educate God's people. To compare them towards consecration. When I see Christians living without any sense of dedication to God, it breaks my heart. My wife knows. I can be watching a movie, I can be watching a series, I can be watching a show. Once I see anything that suggests a lack of consecration, I begin to weep. It may be comedy. The intention of the show will be to make me laugh. Once I see anything that suggests these people are not dedicated to God, these people don't fear God, I just lose interest. I just lose interest. What burden do you have? Too many times, instead of nurturing our burdens and making it something that evolves into a project, we dampen the burden. We crucify the burden. We quench the burden. We ignore the burden. People subscribe to entertainment when they feel sad. Some of this sadness could be burdens of God that you can build on, convert to a divine project. Your first capital is a body. There can be no building project when there is no sufficient body. You look at the ministry of Apostle Paul, you notice burdens. Oh, you look at the tone of his letters, you see the burdens with which he wrote it. How can a man be in prison and still be writing divinely inspired letters? Burdens. When you have burdens, suffering cannot stop you. Hardship cannot stop you. You just continue wonder Where does he get his strength from? Burdens. It's a heart issue. The king said, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. It's a burden. Many Christians have no burdens for God. No burden for divine projects. No burden for God's people. No burden for... They just have burdens for our pockets and burdens for their stomach and burdens for their selfish agenda. They may pray, God use me, God use me. We cannot use you when the fundamental currency for a divine project is lacking. No burden for God. Check yourself. What interests you seriously? What interests you? What is it that can keep you all night awake praying? What? What can keep you alert even if you are tired? What? If it is not the divine project, <laughs> we have not even crossed the primary one level. Some of you know, in some of your entertainment, you can be alert, awake for hours. You won't blink. You know. In some of the pleasures of this life, you know. What can it be said about divine projects? About God's agenda? Can it be said? Or are you just living for your stomach? could have just lived for his stomach, comfortable cup bearer. But no, he had something more. He had a burden for divine projects. The burden means a zeal, an overwhelming interest, enthusiasm, a passion. If you don't have a burden, you quit. When things get tough, 
When things get tough, a burden will sustain you. In the building of the wall, it was tough. There were enemies. There were mockers. There were those who ridiculed the people. What sustained Nehemiah? Burdens. Burdens. Have a burden. Have a burden for the church. I've looked at the life and ministry of Evangelia Deboye. I can tell you emphatically one of the things that kept him going. When things were tough in ministry, burdens. One day he said he was driving his car and rain was falling and the water inside the car was more than the water outside the car. So his wife turned to him and said, man of God. He said, yes. I want to How do you go through so much suffering and you keep going? I said, people quit ministry. And when you trace it, they say, well, I was too much there. Have no burden as well. Why Jesus continued with the cross, endured the shame, despised the cross, burdens. He looked at the joy that was set before him. He remembered me and you. He had a passion for us. It's burdens that will sustain your divine project. If you have no burden, there is no capital for the divine projects. Okay? The next capital that I want to mention here are the resources and the capital. Or let me say, the capital of human resources. For every divine project, there will be men and women and people that God has ordained to work with you. Many times we think about things and currencies and money and gold and silver, but divine projects fundamentally the capital of human resources. When Noah builds the ark, we are not told that any other person joined him. But I can tell you emphatically, Noah did not build alone. His family built with him. When Moses constructed the tabernacle, I can tell you emphatically that Moses did not construct alone. God had to give certain people the spirit of wisdom, a construction anointing. They had to donate. People had to donate gold and silver. The resources of humans. Many times we despise in the building of a divine project, the human capital. There is nothing more important than the human capital. Money will not substitute for human beings. What human beings can do, money will not do. In the building of the wall, it was human beings that helped Nehemiah. First, the king. The resources that were provided were provided by human beings. The resources, resources will not fall from heaven. For your divine project, you will need money. Yes, you will need resources. But they won't fall from heaven. If your human relation skill is poor, you may not be able to execute the divine project. Are you listening to me? If all you know is let's just make money, make money, when we have money, we'll do what we like. No. You will not discover that some doors money cannot open. You say, you have to know somebody. You have to have somebody. My man was wealthy, but the wealth he had could not really, really sustain the project. He needed somebody else. And first, it was the king. We see that it was not just the king, however. Subsequently, in constructing the war, Nehemiah went to the leaders of Israel, spoke to them about it, shared the vision with them, and then everybody now dedicated themselves. In Nehemiah chapter 3, we notice everybody took a particular side of the wall. You build that side, you build that side, you build this side. They distributed the work severally like that. Nehemiah alone could not build the work. At the point, they could not even sleep. As they were building, they held their weapons of war because the enemy was coming. You can't do that alone. There are certain times you won't be able to pray alone. You will need prayer backups. Oh, divine projects, you cannot do it alone. You can't do it alone. You are constructing 
a career, constructing a business, constructing a family, you would have to make use of the capital of human resources. So Nehemiah got help from the king, but let's trace a few things about that incident. Nehemiah chapter 2. We notice in verse 4. Let's start reading from verse 4. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. Let's stop here. First of all, we notice that the favor that Nehemiah obtained was activated in prayers. Listen to me. I didn't say this when I was talking about prayers. Do you know that it took 40, no, 52 days for the walls to be rebuilt under Nehemiah. Everybody say 52 days. But guess what? Nehemiah prayed for four months before he began the project of 52 days. Four months. If you see a project that is fast, it's because somebody has done something at the background. Yeah. When you begin ministry, all of a sudden everybody knows your name. There's something working behind the scene. Prayer. The point I'm making here is this. It was prayer that activated speed for Nehemiah's divine project. He prayed, committed the heart of the king into God's hands. The heart of kings are in the hands of God. Like a course of a river, it turns it to wherever he prays. So when the conversation began, the next statement the king would say is, what do you have as a request? Blank check. And then Nehemiah began to write on the check. Uh, we need timber. Uh, we need this. We need that. Can you give me a letter? Can you give me permission? All of that was achieved in prayer. Many people rush their prayers and they spend too much time on the project. If you rush your prayers, the project will never be complete. Stay in prayers. Sustain prayers so that you can build quickly and strongly. For a marital decision, you are saying, Father, in Jesus' name, plus Jesus minus Satan. Amen. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you, doing? you want to marry? You want to marry? To pick 12 disciples, Jesus prayed all night. People rush their prayers. So, this favor was activated in prayers. But <laughs> there was something about Nehemiah that also gave him an advantage before the king. I told you severally in our previous teachings that this is one of the things I was going to teach you. You must make your life attractive to kings. Esther was attractive to kings. Joseph, attractive to a pharaoh. Daniel, attractive to kings. 
The same was said about Nehemiah. Something about these men made them attractive to kings. The first thing I want to talk about, you must know how to talk to a king. Many wouldn't know how to talk to people in authority. They don't know. They have no skill of conversing with the authority. If I ask you a question, if you meet the governor of your state, what's the first thing you will say? Can you have a profitable, constructive conversation with the governor of your state in such a way that you will leave a good impression in his mind? There are some people when they talk to kings, the king will ask, how did this guy get here? Who gave you password to who entire? Who are you? Some people have not learned to talk to kings. <laughs> are you listening to me? Learn this to you. It's not luck. People don't stand before kings by luck. There is something about people that will be cup bearers. They must have a particular attitude or character. A particular disposition. It's not just about I like kings and queens like me. There must be an attitude that makes you attractive to the palace. One of which conversation. Look at the way Nehemiah was talking with the king. Look at how the conversation was building up. Some people are permanently rude and rash. Even when they are before a king, the thing will reflect. Let me say this. You do not learn how to talk to a king by rehearsing with a prince. You must learn it by rehearsing with ordinary human beings and teaching everybody like they are kings. If you don't treat the person seated beside you like a king, when you eventually get to the palace, you will mess up. Don't think that when you get to the palace, you behave. No. If you have not been rehearsing royal behavior before, when you get to the palace, you will mess up. Treat everybody around you as a king. That's how Jesus treated people. Not just honor all men. There's a way to talk. There are some questions you should not be asking a king. In fact, there are some things you want to say to a king. What you should do is to hope and expect that the king will ask you about it. If, for instance, I have a, an audience with the governor of your state, I will not go and start talking about uh, we have a church, uh, we, are, we are trying to build something, uh, we have not finished our project. That's not how to talk to a king. What you should do is that you trust for an opening. You trust that something about the conversation will enter into the man and ask you, and hey, what do you even do? Oh, my pastor. Oh, where do you pastor? A pastor in the promo shop. Oh, okay. What's your church like? Well, we are quite young. Most of us are young people. Some of us are students. Okay. Do you have a building of your own? Oh, yes, we have a building on our own, but it's not yet completed. Oh, it's not really completed? Yes. Oh, how can I help? Hey! Not that you say, eh, oh, king, king, eh, please, uh, give me money. That's not how to talk to a king. You pray and you look out for opportunities. I know that the rain is injuring our reception, but please just try and listen. Can you hear me? Look out for opportunities. Well, I just go and say, oh, king, okay. Look at how Esther did it. Why she went to the king? The king said, Whatever you want me to give you, I will give you. She said, come and have dinner with me. The first dinner happened. The king said, what do you want? She said, come again for another dinner. Third time, fourth time. You have to be tactful in talking to kings. You don't just open your mouth, lao, 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 lao. You irritate them like that. 
When you meet influential people, make sure the conversation, you don't bear. Do you know what it means to bear? Don't bear. The text will be wise, be smart in your conversation. Pray and look for opportunities. When the opportunity comes, you now chip it in. You now say, oh, you can help us with this and help us with that. Okay? Now, there are a few other things from the book of Proverbs that will help us here. Proverbs 14.35. That one speaks about wisdom. Proverbs 14.35. Kings don't like foolish people. Kings don't like stupid people. The king's favor is towards a wise servant. Towards a wise servant. Stop accumulating foolishness and pray for favor. It will never work. Be smart. Be intelligent. Beyond Cartoon Network and African Magic, watch the news. Know what's happening in your world. You don't read news about it. You don't know what's happening in the country and you want the, the favor of the king. What's the king? You want ballet. You know, go see. Be smart, be wise. Be able to sustain intelligent conversations with influential people. The king's favor is towards a wise servant. I want to be so holistic in my intelligence that I can have conversations with anybody. Anybody. Queen of England, we can talk. What interests you, I may not absolutely know it, but I can hear the conversation. I can contribute my quarter. I can say a little bit about a little, a little bit about everything. Be wise. He says, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. Nothing causes shame like foolishness. It's foolishness that causes shame. So cultivate wisdom. Proverbs 16, 15. This one speaks about righteousness. Proverbs 16, 15. In the light of the king's face, of the king's face is life, and his favor is cloud of the latter rain. I'm not sure where I missed this. Go to verse... Um, or go to the KJV. Let me be sure. Give me a few seconds here. I want to confirm the scriptures. This is the New King James, but I don't know if it was because I used the KJV. Okay, the King James is still saying the same thing. A few minutes here, please. Fourteen thirteen. Sixteen fourteen. Oh, sorry, sixteen fourteen. As messengers, um, it's not my emphasis either. Don't worry, I'll check it. Yes, what verse is that? Which chapter? Sixteen thirteen. Proverbs 16, 13. Righteous lips are the delight of kings and they love him who speaks what is right. Righteous lips. Righteous lips. Listen to me. Make up your mind that you would have a reputation of righteousness. Every king. Listen to me. Even wicked kings like righteous people. Yes. 
a righteous man is profitable to a wicked king. That's why even though Daniel was in a wicked land, the king still had to do business with him. Because a righteous servant will not cheat a king, even if the king is wicked. A righteous servant will not assassinate a king, even if the king is wicked. Even wicked kings, they prefer righteous men. In those days, they came to church to look for staffs. Came to church to look for laborers. Because righteousness will profit every organization. Every nation built on righteousness will progress, will advance. So, don't now say, the king is wicked. I will go and learn wickedness. No. Even if the king is wicked, maintain righteousness. That's what Daniel did. Even if the king is wicked, I will maintain righteousness. Let's go ahead here. Proverbs 22:11. He who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. There are no magic formulas for the king being your friend. You must love purity of heart and grace on your lips. Put this in another version. Let's see what grace on his lips means. Put it in any other modern version as it were. God loves the pure-hearted and well-spoken. Well-spoken. In other words, people who speak well. He says good leaders also delight in their friendship. Put it in another version. Maybe the NLT. Whosoever or whoever loves the pure heart and gracious speech. So that also affirms how you talk must be with some wisdom, with um, courtesy. That's when you'll be a friend of the king. And then Proverbs 22, 29. It's a popular scripture. We, most of us all know it. He says that whoever is diligent will stand before kings and not mere men. The NKJ says, you see a man who excels in his work, he will stand before kings. So diligence and excellence will also make you attractive to the king. Okay. Now this is very important because many of the resources you will need for your divine project, you will get them from kings. But if you don't have, if you have not learned how to have a connection with kings, you will lack resources even for divine projects. It was the king eventually that gave many of the resources that Nehemiah used to rebuild the walls. The king signed it. The king approved it. But if Nehemiah was a foolish servant who does not know how to talk, even though the project was a divine project, he would not get help from God in terms of executing it. Alright, let me do one last emphasis here. Even if I close the service, you cannot go home. So, <laughs> let me do one last emphasis. In constructing or building the wall, you notice that Nehemiah had to deal with an opposition. He had to contend with the enemy. He had to fight battles. For every divine project, there would always be an opposition. 
One of the ways I know that a project is from God is that it is opposed by the devil. If a project is not opposed by the devil, it is not a project of God. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. If someone will try, there will be an attempt of at the gates of hell to prevail, but they will prevail. If hell is not fighting against your project, it could be because the project is a project of hell. If hell is not fighting against your marriage, it could be because your marriage is not a threat to Satan. If Satan is not contending against the construction that you are constructing, it could be because what you are building is not from God. If you are building something from God, there will be oppositions. When you sense opposition, it's not a time to quit. No. It's a time to fortify yourself in battle. I'd like you to see the various kinds of opposition and the strategy of Satan against Nehemiah's building project. And I'd like you to learn lessons from it. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 19. But when Sambalat the Horonite, everybody say Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, everybody say Ammonite, and Geshem the Harab, everybody say Harab. When they heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? The first reaction of the devil most times is to laugh at your project. What are you doing? You want to build a kingdom marriage. You, what do you know? What do you have? You want to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Who is going to support you? You want to build a Christian hotel? You want to build an environment that is conducive for purity and integrity? You want to be a governor as a Christian? They will first laugh at you. Satan often, first of all, mocks divine projects. He ridicules the idea. He ridicules the idea. Rubbishes it, ridicules it, and spites the work. It makes it look as though what you are doing is not worthy of attention. You are building a world. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. You are building a church. He will laugh and say, What are you doing? One day, Reverend George was in the house at the early days of ministry. There were probably about 15 to 20 men in that house that day. Amongst them, I know, included Reverend Victor Adeyemi, Reverend Sam Adeyemi, and a few other prominent ministers of the gospel currently in Nigeria. That was sometimes in 1978. They were all there at that time, Reverend Victor, Reverend Sam, they were small young men. But they were singing and dancing and praying in the Holy Ghost. And a very prominent preacher in Illinois time came and said, Reverend George, what are you doing here wasting your life? Said, what do you mean? He said, what are you doing? Reverend George said, God has called me to take the word of God to the nations. And the man said, is he with this Okada? Reverend George only had an Okada that time. Is he with this Okada you are going to go to the nations? When Reverend George heard that, he felt very demoralized. He felt very sad. Because he expected that another preacher will understand the vision and support him. But no, the man ridiculed the vision. When we read of Sambalat, Tobiah, 
you may think that they are strange people. But by the time we investigate, we discover that some of them were actually married to Jewish women. They had Jewish connection. They were not just strangers. You may think of them as Arabs and Moabites. But some of them had a connection to Nehemiah's country by marriage. Yet, they were the first people that Satan used. The first people that Satan will use against divine projects. They are not demons, though. they are human beings, and human beings that are close to you. Do you think that the people that ridiculed when my wife and I began to cut, the people who ridiculed the idea were men of God? Hey, pastor, small girl, small boy, what do you know about the will of God in marriage? Hey. In fact, when we first of all submitted to the church our intention to get married, they told us that we were too young and that we should come back after one year. I was um, 2012, I was 22. My wife was 19. You have not seen fine girl. That's why you think that you have seen wife. Go for your NYC and come back first. Now we will know whether you are serious. So I said, no problem. If that's what you think is fine. I went, I came back. I said, now still the same baby, I won't marry him. The people that will discover you, they will be members of your own household. What are you trying to build? What project are you trying to achieve? They will ridicule your vision. It's normal. <laughs> but you must know how to react. Look at this other event in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 19. No, it's not 419. Let's see. Hold on here. Start from Nehemiah chapter 4. Start from verse 1. Let's start from verse 1. But it happened that when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding now, in chapter 3, the work has already started. So chapter 4, the work was going on. When they heard that they were rebuilding the wall, that it was furious and indignant and mocked the Jews. First it was fragrance. You don't they turn to fire now. The first one they were laughing. They said, ah, <laughs> what are they doing? What are they doing? No, they, they were not very angry because they saw that the work was actually progressing. Furious and indignant. Furious and indignant. And we're angry. Go ahead, verse 2. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these people Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish? Stones that are burned? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Now they combined anger and ridicule. They began to mock. They began to laugh. They imagine somebody angry and laughing at the same time. Have you seen what's going to do? Their eyes will be red and they will still be laughing. You know it's the laughter of ridicule. They know that it's, it's paining them, but they'll be saying, <laughs> but it's paining them. When you give them the wedding invitation, it will be paining them, but they will say, congratulations, but it's paining them. When you tell them you are doing a church project, it will be paining them, but they'll, be, they'll, be, they'll still be laughing. Ridicule, mockery, and anger combined. Sambalat and Tobiah. He said, even if a fox climbed on the wall, uh-uh, that is a biscuit. He said, the wall will come down. <laughs> what 
kind of a world is that? Just to ridicule the work. The church that they are building, come and sit there. 20 people. And they are there exalting, singing in the Holy Ghost, saying that the Holy Ghost has come. Ridicule. Mockery. That's how Satan does. But look at the reaction of the Imaya. Verse 4. Yeah, our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads. Give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Nehemiah reacted by prayer. When the enemy mocks, you pray. You don't get scared. You don't have to say, no, this project is a, is a very... You don't have to now begin to talk about the fact that uh, God called you, God showed you. No need. You, you are telling Satan that God showed you something. You think Satan will, will understand. Just pray to God. Go back and talk to God. That's how to react to mockery and ridicule. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 9. Okay, just keep, just keep reading verse 5. Keep reading verse... Okay, go to verse 6. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Now they were approaching half. Now what happened when... Sam, now when approaching half, look at, look at what happened. Now. When Sambala, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ash Dodites, some of these words serve, are they tongues or they are, they are languages of men? And the Ash Dodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem. Now, from ridicule, mockery, it evolved to anger, to a conspiracy of an attack. When they say that this is not it halfway, like pray, like pray, like pray, like pray, it's not it halfway. Now they began to talk of attacking. Satan often does not attack at first. He first mocks, ridicules, threatens. He says, attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Everybody say confusion. That one key, one simple way to stop any project is confusion. That's how God stopped the war Babel, confusion. Because once there's confusion in a project, that's why I said you must contend for clarity in prayers for divine projects. Once you begin to get confused, it's an attack of the devil. He attacks by causing, by creating confusion. Go ahead to verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. The reaction must be the same. Make our prayers to God. When Satan ridicules, when Satan mocks, when Satan tries to confuse, we make our prayers unto God. And because of them, we set a watch against them. Now, they did not just make prayers, they also set up watches. Projects are not built by prayer alone. I want marry, I want marry. Don't they pray, don't they pray. I go toast the baby now. I want to be the family, I want to be the family. You have been praying, you have been fasting. You don't go talk. You don't go shoot your shot. I want to build an empire. I want to build an empire. I want to build a career. Take courses. Do programs. Polish your skills. Take professional courses. Do certain things. It's not only prayer. Nehemiah prayed though. But then, because of the attack, he began to set watches. Go ahead to verse 10. Then Judah said, The strength of the labors is failing and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. Now, Judah was a royal tribe. Of all tribes to lament, it should not be Judah. But Judah began to complain. We cannot work again, though, because the confusion of the enemy was beginning. Now, listen to me. 
Many times, what saps your energy is not the work itself. It's the confusion of Satan that saps energy. But look at this statement. very instructive. Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the world. What does it mean? Because it was a land that had been destroyed by war, constructing or reconstructing a wall was difficult because there was so much rubbish debris. If you go to a construction site that has been abandoned for a while, you will have to first remove the matter point it to heap dustbin site. So you have to first of all remove the dustbin first before you begin to build back. Do you understand what I'm saying? So all, most of the energies were turned at removing all the dustbin first of all. They were tired. There are some dustbins you have to remove from your life if you are going to build any project. Dustbin of wrong mentality. Dustbin of wrong relationships. What they do is that if you don't remove them when you are constructing, they will become an ugly sight in what you are building. You will finish the project too, but you will be fine. So you have to first clear out the rubbish. You can't build a family with a rubbish mentality, saying all men are good. Even this one I'm dating now, I'm still looking at, looking at him. You can't build a marriage there. You can't build a, 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 a company or a career if you want to be settled in different of the country with the mentality of nobody can succeed in Nigeria. If you want to succeed, you must bribe. That's a mentality that will crush you. You know, when I was in secondary school, I noticed every time. Um, what do they call them? Inspectors from the Ministry of Education came and noticed that it always ended up in bribery. And I began to tell myself, is it that you cannot open a school without bribing officials? They will carry them to one room. You know what I'm saying? They will not say, negotiate, negotiate. They will not bring money. So that uh, a school can continue. And I began to ask myself, if I'm going to build a school, must I be like this? And some people believe you cannot do business in Nigeria without corruption and bribery. That's a rubbish mentality. Remove it. Remove it. And you must spend energy removing the rubbish. If not, the wall will not be, it will not be built. It will not stand. You will see, once there are rubbish in the walls, it will not be a strong wall. Go ahead to verse 11 here. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So there was actually a plan to kill. But listen to me. Many times Satan says many things that he does not mean. That he cannot do without your permission. Yeah. Our adversary said, we will kill them. Look at verse 12. Follow this story. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came. So, there were seven people who now reported to Nehemiah that they told us ten times. Everybody say ten times. Consistent warnings. They plan to kill you. They plan to kill you. They plan to kill you. From whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Verse 13. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower part of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Verse 14. And I looked and I rose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren and sons and daughters, your wives and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the world and everyone to his work. 
So it was that from that time on, that half of my servants worked on construction while the other half held the spears and shields and bows and war hammer and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with another hand they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side and as built and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive. We are separated far from one another on the wall. What I am trying to say and what the chapter is trying to say is that as soon as Nehemiah was armed for war, the war never happened. I'll go and kill them. I'll go and kill them. <laughs> as long as you are armed for war, you are ready. The war will never happen. It is when you are not ready for war, I said I will not stroll in. Once the enemy heard that Israel had been told of the plan to kill, they never showed up because they knew that if we show up, these people, they have a very serious God, though. Their God, what? He gets us a bit. They didn't show up. I told you on Sunday, or was it last Sunday? It is only if you give place to the devil that Satan can do anything. It's not that powerful. If you don't give him entrance, if you arm yourself, stand by the watch, stand by the gates and watch, Satan cannot do anything. The war never happened. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. Look at this. It happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies had that had rebuilt the world by this time at Parisha, or we were about to Parisha, that there were no bricks left in it. Though at that time I had not hung the door in the gate, so it was just small, small touches that remained. Then Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together. Now, is this how they started? They first of all ridiculed the work. They were angry. They threatened to kill. They even conspired to fight. Now they say, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. Or, or not. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times. Everybody say four times. Distraction techniques. Just to stop. The goal is to stop the work. When he sees that the ridicule did not stop the work, the threat did not stop the work, he now begins to say, come. This. Sometimes they are building a project and there's a distraction. Someone in family just becomes suddenly sick. Satan wants you to put all your heart and energy, fear, anxiety, worry into that situation. No! Don't stop the work. Don't stop the work. A preacher of the gospel, doing God's work, suddenly there's a financial challenge. It's a distraction. Whatever you do, don't stop the work. The man says, I'm doing a great work. I cannot stop. I cannot come and meet you. I don't have time for rubbish. What I'm doing is too important. It's too great. It's too massive. Distraction technique. Verse 5. Then Sambalat sent his servants to me as before, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. It was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the world, that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these two matters will be reported to the king. They began to say, I will tell for you. I will tell for you. You want to be a king, Abi? So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Let's negotiate. If not, I will tell for you. I will report the matter to the king. 
Then I sent them and said, No such things as you are saying are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us afraid. This was the intention of the enemy. Afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Satan is just trying to stop the work. That's all he's doing. All those fear, panic, anxiety, worry, he's trying to stop the work. Don't stop the work. Now, therefore, oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah began to pray again. Afterwards, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehitabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at nine, they will come to kill you. Verse 11, and I said, should such a man as I flee? I know he's there such as I will go into the temple to save his life. I will not go in. Now this man was actually a Jew. And I perceived that God had not sent him at all. Verse 12. Verse 12. But he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sabbath had hired him. Eh. What if, what if, what if five dollars? There are many prophecies over your head that is a lie. Stop believing everything that the prophet said. <laughs> it's not everything that sounds like prophecy that is prophecy. This man was hired. Hired to stop the work. Reverend John said, he wondered, how can a preacher look at me and laugh at me and say, are you going to go to the nations on this bike? Guess what? About 20 years later, 20 years later, they met at the nations. And the man came to him and said, Ah! With tears in his eyes, he said, I was wrong. Judge! Indeed, you have a call. I was wrong to have despised you. 20 years later. <laughs> Even if the person that is laughing at you, mocking you, seems to be a great man of God, if you are sure this is a divine project, don't stop the work. Don't stop the work. This man was hired. They hired him to come and lie. For this reason, he was hired that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. My God, remember. You see, Nehemiah always reacted by prayer, prayer, prayer. So this is how to react to the devil. This is how to react to the enemy. Whatever you do, don't stop the work. It is a great work. I'm done teaching lessons from Petrarchs. That will be that for tonight. And he says, if you have any question, let's ask. Like I said, we can't go home either. So if there are questions to ask from the entire series, Joseph, Esther, Daniel, or Nehemiah, let us ask. So how many of you, now that you have heard about Nehemiah, how many of you consider Nehemiah your favorite character amongst Joseph? Only one person. We trust that you've been blessed by this teaching. We look forward to receiving your testimonies, prayer requests, and feedback. You can send us a mail at judamaye at yahoo.com. That is J-U-D-A-H-M-A-Y-E at yahoo.com. Till next time, remain in the consciousness of God's word and power. Thank you.